record before I forget, because I'm really good at forgetting. Um, the Lord has laid it upon my heart to teach on Advent, teach on Advent. And so growing up, I was not familiar with Advent. That was not something that, that my family did, that my church did. And I didn't even know what Advent meant. And it really simply just means arrival. And so the whole purpose of Advent is to spend four weeks leading up to Christmas in anticipating Jesus' coming. And so you can divide it different ways. You can um, chop it up in different methods. But the whole point is to build in our understanding and our expectation of Jesus coming. And so that means that we start on November 15th. So because there's only four more Redeemer students in all of 2023, which is crazy. Um, You'll have to bear with me. I've never preached with a leash before. So this might be... This is, how, this is how you hold a cord if you're vacuuming, guys. This is how you do it. Um, <clears throat> you got to hold the cord so you don't run over it. It's important. Um, yeah, you can. Sometimes you're all right. Anyways, uh, tonight my title is The Need. The Need. And I want to take this evening as we progress, progressively move towards Christ's arrival to focus on our need. To focus on why Jesus' coming was so necessary in the first place. If you have a Bible, please open it to page 5. Page 5. That is Genesis chapter 6. That's actually where we're going to be, but it's pretty much on page 5 on every Bible. Maybe you'll be on page 4 or page 6, but it'll be pretty close to that. Genesis chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 8. But before we begin, let's pray again. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to gather with your people Lord, we ask that your name would be glorified through our study, that you would open our hearts to understand. Um, Lord, your word promises that your Holy Spirit will illuminate the scriptures to our hearts, to our eyes, help us to treasure it as we ought. And so we ask that that would be the case tonight, even as we study. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's read our passage. Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man in the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And in reading our passage here, there are several things that immediately stand out, which we will take some time to unpack. There's some dramatic words. There's some expressions that we, we want to study. We want to take a closer look at. But before we address those, I want to actually zoom out a little bit. Zoom out so we can see the context of these words. And if you were to flip in your Bible... Uh, minus two pages backwards, you'd reach the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1.1. And really, throughout the chapter of Genesis 1, it is explaining God's creation. It is explaining the fact that God spoke into existence the sun, the moon, the stars. He spoke into existence the mountains, the valleys, the oceans, and all of the creatures that we see outside. God fashions them. In a big word, it's called ex nihilo. Ex nihilo, which means out of nothing, God creates. 
And that's very unlike us because we can only create things out of what already exists. But God, who has no origin, is able to create out of nothing. And that's what he did. And that's the account we receive in Genesis 1. And after creating a suitable environment, he reveals the crown jewel of his creation, which is mankind. God was creating this environment, this, this, this life that man could have. And it's interesting because the last creation, he doesn't speak into existence. Genesis 2, 7 says that he formed the man of dust from the ground, formed it with his hands. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. He is remarkably personal with this creation. Instead of speaking from a distance, God forms with his hands. Instead of declaring from a range, he breathes into the nostrils, which is really funny wording. That sounds odd. But what it communicates is God is personal. And he's especially personal with the creation of mankind. In fact, after creating the first man, Adam we read of the only part of God's creation that needed improvement. (laughs) Verse 18 of chapter 2 says that it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper, a co-laborer that is fit for him. And there's a connection that we should draw here in the way that God creates and in the way that he improves upon his creation. Adam was better living in fellowship, in communion with another person, with a wife. Just as God was personally involved in a spiritual sense with Adam, God desired that Eve would resemble that relationship physically with Adam. This is, a beautiful, this is the beautiful picture of marriage that actually depicts a far greater glory. God forever has existed in personal fellowship with himself. Now this is kind of mind-boggling. But God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have lived in communion with himself. But God, in his infinite wisdom, goodness, and generosity, desired to demonstrate this relationship outside of himself. That's why he made man. He did just that in the garden with a man named Adam and a woman named Eve. And all of creation in this world was designed for their enjoyment so that they would interact with the world and recognize that a creator made it And bring praise and honor to God. Romans 1.20, as Pastor John just spoke on this past Sunday, confirms this. It says this, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world. The reason that there's any physical world at all is so that we can know God and that we can enjoy him forever through the means of his creation. This is the reason that we can see the beauty in trees, in mountains, in rivers, in oceans, in creatures all across the world. That this is the reason that we can look to the stars and attempt to comprehend how mind-bogglingly large they are. So that we can see that God has made them. And if this God has made them, if this God holds the universe in the palm of his hand, how great is he? The problem is, is as you and I have experienced, is that there is a deep level of brokenness that has infiltrated this 
system. Things die. We die. Systems decay. Things break down. And the details of that account of the, in, the brokenness infiltrating the system given in Genesis 3, we will refer to more throughout this series. Adam and Eve were tempted to believe that there was more joy outside of relationship with God than with relationship with him. They falsely pursued their own gain despite God's clear command against it and they plunged themselves from glory into curse. The Bible refers to this brokenness specifically. It's called sin. And sin poses a very serious problem for us. Sin separates us from God because it is against God's nature. And when introduced, sin separated Adam and Eve from walking with the Lord in the garden. And the problem is is that sin is never satisfied. It is never content with a little bit of our hearts, a little bit of our lives. It is always seeking to be the God of our hearts, to be the highest treasure in our minds. And in this way, sin is like fool's gold. It's shiny and attractive. And though it seems worthy of our pursuit at first glance, in reality, it is worthless, flimsy, brittle, and false. And as you and I can attest, however, this does not stop us from desiring sinful things. Even though we know it's not best, even though we know it's not good, we still desire it. Sin is foolish, harmful, wicked, and in a lot of cases, even illegal. And now just think with me on that subject alone, that sin can be illegal. The legal penalties of sin may not stop you from robbing a bank, which I hope none of you are seriously contemplating. That's pretty drastic. But that doesn't stop the desire for that sin. Do you see that? That the consequences may address your behavior, but they don't address your desires. And we feel this in different ways. When you show up to class and you're met with a pop quiz, which you are very unprepared for, you are met with two options. Do I cheat and probably get a better grade, or do I not and likely flunk the quiz? Now, you may not cheat because you understand that the ramifications of cheating can be severe. When I was growing up, if you got caught cheating, you were automatically suspended. And that was a pretty big deterrent for a lot of people. I, I'm not, I don't want to get suspended. I don't want that going on my record. But what the consequence of the action doesn't deal with is the desire. It doesn't address the desire. Where does that desire come from then? The reason that we feel a tendency to any sin, whether that be cheating or lying or stealing or lusting, is because we have a suspicion in our minds that if we were to participate in this sin, we would have more enjoyment than if we were to say no to it. There's something within our minds that says this sin is going to fulfill me in a way that living righteously can't. And this is what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve They were presented with an opportunity to have more knowledge, to be built up in their understanding, to be like God in their seeing of good and evil. And it made them think that life could possibly be better outside of God's command. But what we see as we circle back now to Genesis chapter 6 
is that this decision did not elevate their position. In fact, it sent them downwards. And it sent them into ruin because sin is a spiraling downward trend. Note that it only took three chapters from the first sin ever recorded to get to the point where we read in verse 5 that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only three chapters. At this point, you may be wondering if there's actually going to be any points to this sermon, which, yes, there are. But I needed to set the stage. I needed to spend some time on the context. So my first point is, number one, the pervasiveness of sin. Pervasiveness of sin. For something to be pervasive, it means that it affects every part of something. So a good illustration, a good way to think of this is to think about salt in the ocean. Salt in the ocean is pervasive. You can't pull a spoonful of water out of the ocean and have it not be salty. Because the salt has affected, it has infiltrated every part of the ocean. The sin nature that we have inherited from our first parents has pervaded every part of us. And it reveals itself in our words, in our actions, in our thoughts, in our tendencies, in our desires, as we just talked about. And you may say, Pastor Gabe, you don't know me that well. I'm, I'm pretty good. Yeah, I sin and I make mistakes, but overall, I'm pretty good. I do chores when my parents ask me to, and I study hard for school, and I even help old ladies cross the street, which probably I won't even address that one because I've never heard of anyone actually helping an old lady cross the street. But for something, we have to, we have to interpret this Correctly, You notice that all of these things that I just mentioned are actions, only actions. And for something to be right, for something to be genuinely good, absolutely good, it has to be the right action, but it needs something else. It needs the right intention, the right action, the right intention. The problem is, is that even... Well, on our own accord, naturally, even our best actions come with a flavor, with a tint of wrong reasoning. We may desire to do these things, but it's always going to partially be motivated by our own best interest, not by the interest of others. And that's what our verse, verse 5, addresses, that the intentions of man's heart was only evil continually. And don't think that as you read Genesis chapter 6, that this is just something that's way back when, not what we deal with now. Because Jesus speaks on the same issue in Mark 7 verse 21. He says this, For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. What Jesus is communicating in very explicit terms is that all of the bad things, all of the sinful things that we produce come from within us. They don't come from the broken systems around us. They don't come, the main issue that humans have is not a result of these fractured systems, of these oppressive systems surrounding us, the main issue comes from within. It comes from the heart. 
comes from the sin nature that you and I are all born with. And this sin nature leads to an abundance of sinful behaviors. Jesus gave a very long list of all of the ways that this sin nature reveals itself. What this means for you and me is that we do not have an excuse for our sin. There is nothing that we can point to in this world and say, that's why I sinned. That is the reason. That's the motivation. That thing caused me to sin. And even in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve committed the first sin, what do they immediately do? His fault, her fault, the serpent's fault, anyone but them. They turned the attention away from them because they were unwilling to accept that they sinned. They're trying to make any argument that will shift the responsibility from them. And we do this too. Let's imagine a few scenarios. You're on a family road trip, all piled into your Honda Odyssey, which I know hits home because I've seen 12 of them in the church parking lot. It's like the most popular car at Redeemer, I swear. Honda Odyssey. In your, in your road trip, you're sitting next to your brother. And he's being really annoying. He's just, he will not leave you alone. And your mom tells him to keep to himself, and he does the stupid thing where he like puts his, his finger right here and goes, I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. So annoying. I've been there. But he doesn't actually touch you. And so you lash out in anger and you yell at him. And you say, dude, stop it. Like, I will beat you up. That's what I would say if I had a younger brother, but I don't. You lash out in anger in response to his irritation. Is your sin his fault? Here's another. You're driving down Mulford to get to church, running behind. And all of a sudden... This blind grandma cuts you off and then proceeds to go 38 miles an hour in a 45. This just bubbles your rage. And you're just, you're over, overwhelming, overflowing, not good. And all of a sudden, a swear word slips out of your mouth while you're driving. You feel bad, but not that bad because that was, that was uncalled for. Is your sin her fault? See, Jesus would say that all of our wicked behavior that comes out of our lives is a result of what's going on in here. It's not a result of the world. The world is not the fault for our sin. We are the fault for our sin. Here's an illustration. When you squeeze an orange, if I have an orange here in my hand and I squeeze it, it produces orange juice. Because what is inside of it comes out of it. And when you squeeze a human being with pressure and aggravation and anxiety and worry, what comes out of it is sin. It's not a foreign substance. It is already within. Our text says that the Lord saw the wickedness of man and it was great in the earth. And truly, before God sent a deluge, a flood of water, there was already a flood of sin on the earth. All of the world was living in sin, pursuing in sin, and content with sin. That is because sin is pervasive. Sin pervades our natural bodies, but what's the big deal? Isn't sin just a me and God thing? Isn't it just abstract? Isn't it just failing to meet some standard that I could never attain to anyways? Failing to hit the mark, failing to do what is expected of me. Well, it is all of those things, but it is much more than that. Sin is against someone. That's point number two, the personal nature of sin. 
the personal nature of sin. Let's read verse 6 again together. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Don't you hear in this statement a deep wounding? Don't you see that your sin is very personal to God? When he says this, that is so personal. And we have to take a second to stop and recognize that this language is not to necessarily be taken literally. God obviously knows all things. And even 1 Samuel 15 verse 29 confirms this truth. It says that God will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. Okay, so God knows all things, but the text says that God regretted making them. How can this be? Why would they be this way? It's because all throughout Scripture, authors use human ways of thinking, of talking, and of illustrating God so that we can relate to him. Okay, when, when God talks about his strong right arm that, that supports his people, does God actually have a physical arm? No, he doesn't have a physical arm. He is God. But all throughout the Bible, there's many other illustrations of this. But the bottom line is that even though it's not literal... This is the inspired word of God, and that means it's intentional. So it's intentional that God would put this word in there, that it deeply regretted him, that God was moved by their sin. Does anyone in here have a friend that they're very close to, a best friend? Maybe that's a sibling. Maybe that's a friend you grew up with. Maybe in some ways that's even a parent, someone that you're very close to. You relate to on a lot of levels. When you think of offending that person, of saying something sinful to them, do you think your words hurt more than a stranger's? If I had a a dear best friend that I grew up with for my whole life, and I just said, I hate you, would that hurt him more than if a stranger on Facebook said, "I I hate you, right? Like, obviously, there's a difference there. There's not a difference in the words, in the choice of words, But there's a difference in the relationship that we experience. And remember that God is the one who formed us. He knows all things about us. Three chapters earlier, he had walked with his creation in the garden, communing with them. God shared his very nature with man and woman. This was a relationship that was intimate to God. And these people in the world forgot him, rejected him, Turn from him, though he had been nothing but good, loving, gracious, and merciful towards them. And this was not an impersonal matter. In a very real sense, it grieved the heart of God. Student, when you sin against someone else, do you recognize that you are actually sinning against God's prized creation? The crown jewel of all creation is you, is all of you, human beings, mankind. That is God's special creation. And so when we are sinning against a person, it is sinning against an extension of God himself. Our sin is personal in nature. And as we are now beginning to see that sin by default pervades our whole heart, it's also personal in its nature, 
And to connect those two would mean that there's a significant damage to a relationship. Sin is significant. It's great. It's severe. And it's also against someone. You put those two together, and that means there is a broken relationship. Broken sin, relationship, personal. This is the need that we all face. We need reconciliation with God. So my last point comes from the following question. What does God do? Number three, if you're writing something down, God's response to sin. What does God do about it? Well, reading in verse seven, the Lord says that I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. This illustrates the depths of our sin, how serious it is that God would destroy this creation that he loves. God is righteous. And the whole purpose of creating mankind is so that they would see his righteousness and so that they would actually participate in his righteousness. But from this perspective, humanity has failed. The project of humanity is a sunk ship. There's no hope. There's no hope for reconciliation because good deeds can't reverse bad deeds. Just because you do something good doesn't mean you didn't do something bad. Does that make sense? Unrighteousness is like an ink stain on our clothing. No amount of washing it off will remove it. It can't be done. And remember that it only took three chapters of this downward spiral to reach a point where everyone did all that was evil continually. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Romans 3, 11 through 12 summarizes this. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The people here are uninterested in their maker. They are uninterested in the God who formed them with his hands, who breathed into their nostrils with his mouth, who was deeply personal with his creation. They have despised this relationship and forgotten him. And God, being perfectly holy and just, in accordance with his nature, seems to only have one option. Scrap the plan. Destroy the world. The exercising of judgment is the right thing to do. Do you get that? It's hard for us to think about God and his nature and say, well, yeah, that makes sense, okay? Because God is infinite, we're not. But if God is righteous... If God is just, he can't let sin go unpunished. That would break his character. That would be against his character. And so that's mostly what he does. In his judgment, he sends a flood of water to cover the earth to destroy the creation that he has formed. The clay in the potter's hands was spoiled and he alone has the right to discard it. But as many of you know, It's not all he does. God determines that he will not scrap the entire plan. He won't send the entire world to judgment. Instead, he will select a man and his offspring to endure. And that's why verse 8 is such good news to us. Look at it if you have your Bibles open. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, to be clear, Noah sinned. He wasn't perfect 
We see this in Genesis chapter 9. You can flip there in small group later and look at it. He sinned. He was a sinner. And because we know that if, you get, if, you're, if you're guilty of breaking one part of the law, you're a lawbreaker. Just bottom line. You are guilty of breaking the whole law according to God's standard. That means that if Noah found favor in God's eyes, it wasn't because he was righteous. Because in some way he was unrighteous. The way that Noah found favor in God's eyes is because he trusted in him. Noah was different than the people in this world because he trusted God. The proof of this comes just a few verses later. Noah hears the seemingly ridiculous instructions of God to build this boat and to spend 120 years building this huge boat, even though there's actually... Good scriptural evidence, according to Genesis 2.5, that says that it probably, at this point, had never rained on the earth. Okay, can you imagine that? You live in the middle of a desert. It's never once rained. The people don't even know what rain is. God says, build a boat <laughs> and spend a lifetime building this boat. Even though the people around you are going to despise you, they're going to say you're stupid, they're going to say you're foolish, they're going to tell you you need to stop, there's no point to do this. Build a boat. And Genesis 6.22 says this. Noah did it. He did all that God commanded him. Noah did not receive favor because he built a boat. You need to know that. Noah received favor because he trusted in the word of God. And he trusted in God's word so much so that his life reflected his trust. His actions were in accordance with his beliefs. If, God, if Noah didn't actually trust God, he wouldn't have built the boat. But because he built the boat, it reveals the faith that he had. And so it is with you and me today. God does not look at our lives, look at each one of us and say, not perfect, but better than that one. That's not the standard that God uses. He looks at our lives and sees one of two things. Sinner deserving judgment or favor because of our faith in the Lord. There is no in-between because an in-between would be unjust. If you don't bear the punishment of your sins, then Jesus has to. There's no sins that go unpunished. It either is upon us or it's upon another, Jesus Christ. And if Christ bears it for us, we are seen by the Father as beloved, as favored, as a recipient of grace because of all that Jesus has done for us. And as we continue in this series in the coming weeks, studying the story of redemption, it ought to be clear to us today that we all have a great need. We have sinful desires that reveal themselves in the way that we act, the way that we speak, the way that we respond. And this need reaches far beyond our ability to meet in ourselves. This is the need. As we look to different windows of redemption throughout Scripture, it's my hope and prayer that you will see in every glimpse there's this thread, this scarlet thread that is being woven into the blanket of the universe. The story of redemption, the scarlet thread would be that Jesus is being predicted ever since the beginning of the Bible. 
And there would be signs that continue to point to his work on earth, what it will look like, what it will be like, how he will act, how he will respond, what he will do. And all along, ever since Genesis, the only way that humans can be made right with God is by trusting him. That's it. There's no other option. And so that's the call even to us tonight. Do we trust in the Lord? Do we take him at his word? Does that reflect itself in the way that we live? If God said, build a boat, would you build a boat? Because that is the evidence of our faith. It doesn't save us. The actions don't save us. But they're the way that our faith is displayed. And that is the good news is that as we look to Jesus, we know that God has not left us without hope. When our situations are dismal and crushing, when we're led to despair and depression because of the pressure without and the sins within, we can look to hope. The hope that has entered into this world through the person of Jesus Christ and by whom we can look at to in faith and in doing so be saved from destruction. Do you know that? Do you trust that? Do you love that? It is my prayer that you would. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your word. We're grateful for your